0: You are now listening to the April 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's program includes Christian Ease 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christian Ease 101.
1: O Sovereign God, O matchless King the saints adore, the angels sing And fall before the throne of grace To you belongs the highest praise These sufferings, this passing time Under your wings, I will
2: This is Grace, and I am your new host for the Christian Knees 101 program series. If you have ever been baptized, you probably have experienced a communion in which you drank grape juice or wine and ate bread. Since I was young, I have partaken in this communion, and although I never knew the meaning behind it, I just followed my fellow classmates and parents. Thinking that it was just a simple church routine. So today we will be going over the meaning of communion. The word communion often makes you think of the night before Jesus' crucifixion, also known as the Last Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28 states While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. This passage shows that the bread represents Jesus' body, and the wine represents Jesus' blood poured out for the sins of the world. So why is it that we must eat bread and drink wine? The answer to that is in John chapter 6, verses 56-57. through 57. Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. The Bible states that the one who eats this bread will live because of me or become one with Jesus. It is because of Jesus that we have eternal life instead of death. If this is true, then why do we repeatedly eat and drink when you could just do it once? For this, we will look in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus said, This is my body which is given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance means to recall what Jesus has done for us being hung on a cross, pierced in the side, and ultimately dying for our sins. It is a remembrance of how God sent His one and only begotten Son, as well as how Jesus gave His life to redeem ours. This is why we participate in communion. We do this in remembrance of what He has done and to become one with Jesus. So, how often do you have to participate in communion? The Bible does not exactly say, Because of this, every church decides for themselves when to have communion or whenever they see fit. However, more importantly than how often you have communion is where your heart is when you do it. First, As I've already mentioned, it is with remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. This is why we shouldn't eat and drink lightheartedly, but instead, we should glorify Jesus by remembering His sacrifice and savoring the bread and wine. It is because it has a deeper meaning of Jesus' sacrifice. The Bible says that before partaking in communion, you must examine your heart. If you don't, you are committing a grave sin against the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 to 29 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Because of these two reasons, taking communion lightly as well as not repenting of your sins is a sin and is regarded as if you are taking the Lord lightly. If you were not aware of this, just be sure to ready yourself from now on. But consider verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So from now on, we must not take communion casually. Be careful to examine your heart before the service. Remember Jesus' sacrifice and become one with Jesus and dedicate the life you live on this earth. Finally, we must invite others to transform their lives and meet the Lord, just as we have. As it says in verse 26, Proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I hope you all will meditate on how Jesus held nothing back as He gave His all for us, opening the doors of salvation and proclaim this throughout the week with all of your heart, with all of your might, and with all of your strength. Until next week, this has been your host, Grace.
3: I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have. Such much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you and it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for the things When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. King of Endless Word, no one could express how much you deserve. Every single breath I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within And through the way things appear You're looking into my heart
0: Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth without the shock value and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter.
2: Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor Dustin Daniels.
5: We started a brand new lesson on hiding, and today is part two of that lesson. It's called Confessing the Wrong Sins. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why you're not experiencing freedom from pornography? Why you can't seem to go an extended period of time without viewing porn? Maybe your spouse is listening right now and and they're thinking, yeah, yeah, why can't they stop? And, And some of you are thinking, well, you know what, man? I've been confessing sin. It's not working in my life. This group thing is not working. This counseling thing is not working. I've been doing it off and on for years, and I just don't get it. I've been doing all this stuff, and yet it just seems to work for a short period of time. But that's it. And this this freedom that you're talking about, Dustin, well, man, I just don't get it. I don't get it. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm simply going to be an addicted Christian for the rest of my life. Have you ever said that? Maybe thought about it? Well, me too, along with many, many other people, so you're not alone. Uh, So let's talk about it. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how it's not pornography we're in bondage to, but rather it's the pleasure that the pornography brings. Number two, how consequences seem to change everything. They do. And then number three, how maybe, just maybe, you're confessing the wrong sin. And I'm going to share a prayer with you that will change everything. This podcast is from a larger lesson. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, this bondage, this addiction to pornography. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is Confessing the Wrong Sin. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Isn't that a great God? You can write on your notes there, First John one nine. You know, first John one nine and James five sixteen, we should rename the ministry that because that's what this thing is all about, right? First John one nine says, If I confess my sins to Almighty God, he is faithful and just to forgive me. It's based on his faithfulness, not ours. We're not faithful to him. Right? And then James five sixteen says, if I'm gonna confess my sin to a brother, then that's where the healing begins. I'm going to have brothers praying for me. So why aren't some of you experiencing healing tonight? Some of you are thinking, well, confessing my sin. I may be confessing it to God and not to somebody in here. That would be the, the, the first problem I would, I would just advise you of, that the, the sin needs to be confessed in here as well uh, as to God. But for those of you who are going, you know what, man? If you're stuck in this cycle of sin, confess, sin, confess, key point number four, and you're not experiencing healing, you have to note and come to terms with you're in bondage to the pleasure, or you're a slave to the pleasure. If you want to write addicted to the pleasure, you can do that. Notice that through this series and through God's word, we really don't use the word addicted much. I'm addicted because my dad was a sex addict and an alcoholic. I'm addicted because I was sexually molested when I was a child. See how I can play that card? And I can play that card all day long with secular counseling. It's not my fault. I didn't choose to be abused. My dad had a collection of pornography, and and all that is true. But God uses bondage and slavery instead of the word addiction. You do find the word addiction in First Timothy when the Apostle Paul says, you know, we're talking about elders. You know, you're looking for people who are above reproach, not addicted to much wine. And keep in mind that the word addicted there is this idea of someone else is your master. Someone else is giving you your orders. But when you're in bondage and slavery, it's the same thing. But there's not that tone of victimization to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Key point number five, the consequences have not become severe enough. So if you're in a cycle of sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, and you're not experiencing healing, the consequences have not been severe enough. So in other words, this idea of not changing is less than not changing at all. So if you put these two things on a scale, right, Whatever the consequences are, those, those have to start getting higher for us to get our attention. And that's what it is for a, a lot of men, right? Those consequences have to start piling up and we have to start suffering for our sin. And then key point number six, it could be if you're in a cycle of sin confess, sin confess, you're not experiencing healing, that you're confessing the wrong sin. You're confessing the wrong sin. You're not confessing to God that you love the pleasure. So there's an example there of a prayer that I would encourage you guys to read. So it's this idea of, Lord, please forgive me for my sin. Right, That's what we all do. Please forgive me for this. Versus just, Father, forgive me in general. So Father, forgive me, I did it again. Lord God, please forgive me for lust. Please forgive me for masturbation, for pornography. Please forgive me because, and then we can just read it. I love the pleasure that my sin brings. Lord, please forgive me that I love this right now more than I love you. I love it more than I love people. And that's why I continue to rebel and run from you. And I'm not being an obedient son. Father, please forgive me. Please humble me And please take everything away from me so I will stop making intentional choices that harm other people. Please do whatever it takes to mold me into the man that you've destined me to be. It's this idea that we're going to quit telling God what to do with our lives, right? This God in a box type thing. I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not going to do it again. Instead of, you know, what, what does surrender look like? What's that look like in our lives? So in your, you're in a 7-Eleven, and I come up to you, and I've got a gun, and I do this. What are you going to do? What are you physically going to do? Nothing. What would you do? <laughs> there you go. That's what, look- you that's, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, do whatever you uh, This. It's this idea of surrender. And I got to tell you guys, surrender is hard. It's just hard. And I'm not talking about sexual sin stuff, man. I'm talking about life. God gets you out of this box. You start praying a prayer like that, holy, just watch out. But we have to understand that God's intention for us is so much better than our intention for ourselves. Ephesians 3.20, to him be the glory. For you know, you can do more than I could ever ask or even think. Think about that. You can do abundantly more, exceedingly more, than I could ever ask or even think, oh, according to the power at work within me, which is the Holy Spirit. You start praying a prayer like that, not only will, will you start gaining some self-control in this, uh, this area of sexual integrity, and you won't have to worry about girls walking around in stretch pants or too short shorts. You won't have to worry about that stuff because it's so stupid. Because you're a man of God, you're a man of integrity. They're wearing short shorts and stretch pants and dressing like that because they don't know. They're trying to find love in all the wrong places, right? And unfortunately, the love that they're going to attract is one of just flat-out abuse. It breaks my heart. But you know what? When I was that age, that's what I wanted to see. And my prayer for these these girls is that they don't date someone like me flat-out that they're not dating some knucklehead like me. So this idea of hiding. So we've learned tonight that we can hide and then also the Lord himself can hide his face, right? If there's unrepentant sin in your life, make no doubt about it. God's not listening to your prayers. He's not. You can search the scriptures for that. It's over and over and over again. But there's also another way of hiding. And this is really cool. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses was afraid to look at God. He hid his face. Well, why did Moses hide his face? when you read passages like that guys and you have a question see what else the bible has to say about the that same topic because what you'll you'll find out is that scripture interprets scripture right so it's this idea of the the reason that Moses couldn't look at god is because nobody can look at god and live so imagine if god is is spirit and light then you know, the, the closest thing that we can come to is, is looking at the sun. But he hid himself because of who he was, because he can't, because God's holy, man. And I, I look at this passage, guys, and I, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. I think when we come to the Lord in our prayers and we go and we rush into them, let's just take a deep breath and let's remember who we're talking to. I mean... <laughs> This is God. He's our Father. And yes, He loves us, but He's holy. And there's a reverence that we as Protestants, Evangelicals, whatever your, your background is or whatever you are now, we've lost that. You know, there's some other, some other face that holds to a reverence that, that uh, we could certainly learn from, um, but uh, I think it's a good takeaway that we remember who we're talking to. And inside the, the scriptures for the purity plan this week, you're, you're going to run into some of these psalms. Let me give you one more scripture before we break into groups here. Turn to Psalm one nineteen, one fourteen. 114. I love Psalm 119 because it just keeps pointing us right back to the word. Psalm 119, verse 114, you're my hiding place. You're my shield. I hope in your word. So you're my hiding place. See, it's this idea, guys. It's not that I'm going to go run away and hide. It's not the fact that I've got unrepentant sin in my life and I refuse to repent, so God's going to hide his face from me. How about we hide the, the Lord's word in our hearts, that we actually hide his word into our hearts? So when we're out on the battlefield here, That we can not just run away, not that we can just say, Jesus, help me, but we could actually start using God's Word as the sword of the Spirit, that we're going to hide His Word in us, and nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can take God's Word from you. Nobody. And that's why it's so important to plant His Word deep, deep into your heart. Psalm 119, verse 114 says, You are my hiding place. You're my shield. I hope in your word. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covers up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. I I love that passage. I actually... Produced a whole podcast on that verse. And if you want to check it out, it's titled Searching for Buried Treasure in Your Life, and it's podcast number 131. You know, there is a godly way to hide. Psalm 27, 5 reads, For he will conceal me when the trouble comes, he will hide me in his sanctuary, he will place me out of reach on a high rock. Psalm 27, 9 reads, do not hide your face from me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me. O oh God of my salvation. Psalm 32, 7 reads, You are my hiding place. You will keep me out of trouble. You will surround me with songs that remind me that I'm free. Psalm 38, verse 9, O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. You know, I used to hide everything. I had so many secrets. I had so many balls of fire that I was trying to juggle with so many different people. I was trying to keep so many things straight, not remembering what I said to who, because my life was a mess. And one of the reasons it was so messy was because I could access porn anytime I wanted on my computer. You know, I, well, I I also didn't have any accountability. Well, for that matter, I, I didn't have any friends. And I didn't have any friends because I didn't go out and out of my way to be a friend. I was so consumed with myself. That's what porn does. It's all about me. It's the unholy trinity, right? It's me, myself, and I, instead of Father, Son, and Spirit. Porn makes me believe that everyone on this planet is available to serve me. So let me ask you, are you ready to take a step forward from the darkness of what's on your phone and your computer and bring it into the light as well? Well, you can do that. You can install Covenant Eyes accountability and filtering software on it. And you can install this on every single digital device. And when you do this, Man, I'm telling you, you're going to feel a huge weight lifted off of you. I promise you, I've been using it for years. It allows me to avoid exposing myself, my family, my friends from the evils of pornography. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. My name is Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, let me invite you our weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives. You can come separately. You can come together. It doesn't matter. Single, divorced, searching for God. It doesn't matter. Everyone is welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at PurityPastor. And if you've got a question for me, man, send it in. I I would love to hear from you and maybe even respond on this podcast. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Behold His Love, based on Psalms 63. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around
6: you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Psalm chapter 63. Psalm chapter 63 And my simple question for every one of you today is this. Do those words describe your relationship right now with God? Adoration, affection, longing, ultimately love. In the next few minutes, I I just want to ask you what I believe is in a sense, the most important question I could possibly ask you. And I don't wanna just ask it in general. Like, I wanna ask you, like, right where you're sitting, not the person in front of you, behind you, like, I wanna ask you right where you're sitting, is your heart in love with God? Because I'm concerned that for many professing Christians, words like affection, longing, love, don't really describe our relationship with God. I'm concerned that many people in the church have faith in God, but for a variety of different reasons. If we're really honest, we lack feeling for God. It's like there's belief in God in our heads and even belief in his love. Like we know, John three sixteen, we know, God so loves the world, so loves us, that he gave his son to die on the cross so that whoever believes in him will never perish, will have an eternal everlasting life. Like we can hear that verse, know this truth, and actually believe this about God in our heads. But if we're really honest, there can be a a passion for God that's missing from our hearts. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm jealous for that not to be the case in our lives. Like, I don't want to experience a day, I don't want you to experience a day missing out on the satisfaction God has designed for your relationship with Him right now. And I really don't want you to miss out in eternity. I was was reading James 1, 12, 2, 5 a couple days ago. Both talked about how heaven is prepared and the language it uses for those who love God. Not merely for those who believe in God. James says even the demons believe in God. They're not in heaven. Like that's, heaven is for those who love God. And not even just for those who do things for God. Matthew 7 haunts me. When I hear Jesus say that many people, he uses the word many, not some or a couple or a few. He says many people will stand before him on judgment day and say, Lord, do we not do all these things in your name? And I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me. Do we hear that? Like many people will be shocked to stand before Jesus one day thinking their eternity was safe when it was not. That's why I'm asking, like, is your heart in love with God? This is the key to life now and life in eternity. Now, how do you create that kind of love for God? Like, can you just manufacture it? How do you get that kind of love for God? And I believe answer the Bible gives us. How do you you love God like that? You realize the greatness of God's love for you. You realize it, you receive it. Like really receive it. I want to read Psalm 63 because it is one of the most beautiful expressions, I think, in all of the Bible of love for God. Right in the middle of it, King David, who's writing this, says to God, your love is better than what? That's why... I believe David feels this kind of longing and love for God because he knows God's love for him is better than life itself. And I long for us to know that. Because when we know that, I think, believe, we will long for God like this. I want to read Psalm 63, and then I want to show you what happens when you realize the greatness of God's love for you. So if you're taking notes, I just want to show you four effects of God's love on your life when you realize it. Not just in your head, it's like, yeah, I know, I know God loves me. Like Demons believe that, that God loves sinners. Demons believe that. The question is, do you realize it in your heart? So I want to show you what, what happens in your life when you realize that in your heart. So follow along with me, Psalm chapter 63. This is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, verse one. Just listen to his words, oh God, this prayer shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Oh, let, let me pray for us. God, I, I pray for this kind of relationship with you all across this room and at other campuses. I pray for people uh, who don't have a relationship with you, any relationship with you right now, that even in the next few minutes, that that might change. God, I pray for men and women and students right now whose hearts may not be hot for you. God, I pray that that might change in the next few minutes. you would kindle passion in our hearts all across this room and other campuses as your word is heard. And God, for those who do have longing for you, that, that would only increase in the next few minutes. God, I pray for these things in my own life. I pray, God, help us. We want you to see a people whose hearts adore and long for and love you. God, may that be so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, so how does God's love affect you? in order that you write these kind of words. Well, you start at the top, before you even get to verse one, it says when, this is a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So we don't know for sure what the setting is here. It was most likely when King David was fleeing uh, his son Absalom's rebellion. What we do know for sure is that David was in the wilderness both physically and spiritually. So physically, he was on the run with his life, his kingdom in danger. So he talks about those who were seeking his life in these words. You see him say, as long as I live, like the picture is a man who is in danger of death. Physically and then spiritually, he was separated from the sanctuary in Jerusalem, the temple, the place where God's glory dwelt among his people in a palpable way. David missed being in the middle of God's worship. So it's obviously not the same thing, but that's kind of the point here. So here's the first effect. When you realize the greatness of God's love for you, then your relationship with God becomes a consuming addiction, not a convenient addition. That's the first effect. And I want you to think about this with me. Psalm 63 is written by a man with a consuming addiction to God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. That language actually has dual meaning there. It could be translated early I seek you or earnestly I seek you because the the word for seek is related to the Hebrew uh, noun for dawn. So the picture is from the moment the day begins, David wants to be with God. Like his eyes open, he's like early. First thing, I'm seeking you. All day long, my soul thirsts for you. He feels like he's in a desert. He doesn't have water. He's desperate for it. Imagine being in the desert. You know, if you could just get a glass of water, like that would totally replenish you. That's what David's saying. He's saying, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power, your glory, your love is better than life. I know that if I can just be with you, my soul will be replenished like water to a thirsty body. Verse five, my soul is satisfied in you more than with the richest of foods. He craves God more than he craves food. And it's not just in the morning, all day long, it's at night. Verse six, I remember you upon my bed. I think about you in the watches of the night. Doesn't Does this sound like an obsessed man? I just think about you all the time. All the time. That's why I use the word addicted. Think about an addict who's consumed with desire for one thing, driven with desire for one thing, believes they can have that one thing. They'll be satisfied. They just want that one thing. This is like David in Psalm 27 where he says, one thing I ask, just one thing I seek. I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you, God. And this, this right here is what biblical faith is all about. Like biblical faith in God is consuming addiction to God. Think think about other examples. Think about Philippians chapter one. When Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Doesn't that sound like an addict? Like more more than my own life. I just, I gotta have this one thing. I wanna be with you. That's the picture here. This is Christianity. This is what Jesus taught just a few days ago in my personal Bible reading. I come to Luke 14 verse 26. Earlier this week, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does that mean? You can't be your disciple of Jesus. Unless you hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life. And we'll talk about this more in a minute. Obviously, we know from all of Scripture that we're commanded to honor our father and mother, to love our spouse, children, family. But the picture here, what Jesus is inviting us into here is a love relationship with Him that will make our closest relationships in this world look like hate in comparison. That's why he says, later in Matthew chapter 10, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Don't miss this. This is initial teaching from Jesus. This isn't like in-depth discipleship lesson number 10. Like this is number one. If you're gonna be my disciple, you gotta realize, so what is Christianity? Christianity is obsession with Christ. Christianity is a relationship with God that is like a consuming addiction to God. But what I fear is that this is foreign among us. I think we, if we're not careful, we totally miss this. And instead of God being a consuming addiction in our lives, we make God a convenient addition to our lives. I think we've created a whole picture of Christianity today. Where we just add God onto all sorts of other people and things that we love in our lives. We love, even idolize, family, health, work, money, success, sex, sports, exercise, food. We can go on with a host of other pleasures, pursuits, possessions in the world that if we're not careful, we give our affection attention to. And then we just add God into the mix. Like sure we'd say we believe in God. We'd even say we worship God. But the question is do we want God more than we want anyone or anything else in this world? Do we want God more than we want our spouse or our kids? Do we want time with God more than we want an extra hour of sleep or exercise or so many other things we spend our days doing. Do we, do we want God's glory in the world more than we want our comforts in the world? Do we, do we want God's glory more than we want our money? And if, when, any of these things are true in our lives, when we want those things more, that seems to be a sign that we don't realize the greatness of God's love for us. And we're missing something. Our perspective is off. Like we're talking about the God of the universe. Who is infinitely more beautiful. Infinitely more wonderful. Infinitely more loving. More satisfying than anyone or anything. Than everyone and everything in this world put together. We're talking about God. The God of the universe loves you. Like right where you're sitting. Like You even though you've rebelled against Him, even though you deserve separation from Him forever. He loves you. He loves you so much. He's created you. He's formed you. hes We heard it from Psalm 139. He's fearfully, wonderfully made you. He knows you, everything you have ever done, and He loves you anyway. And He has invited you, right where you're sitting, to experience not a religion characterized by cold, monotonous, dull routine. No. God has invited you to experience a relationship with him characterized by love and adoration and affection and joy and delight. It's just an awesome thought, which leads to the second effect of God's love. So when you realize the greatness of God's love for you, then you realize your worship is no longer mere duty. It is immeasurable delight. Think about it. David is clearly not talking here about the worship of God as something he has to do or needs to do or supposed to do. Though in a sense, worship is all of those things. God deserves our worship. But David here is talking about God's worship as something he he longs to do. This is not duty for him. This is delight. You look at the actions here. He's singing with his lips. He's lifting up his hands. He's shouting for joy. Earlier on in the week, we had read in Luke 14 in our Bible reading that we do together, We'd read about uh, the pair of the lost sheep, lost coin, bird of the prodigal son, uh, rejoicing in heaven over one person who turns and trusts in Christ. So we talked about that a few days before. Well, isn't it easy for our affections, maybe it's sports, maybe it's something totally different, but our affections to get so excited by things in this world, and not that are bad by any means, but put it in perspective, like how much more should our Affections be excited by the worship of Almighty God. And Do we realize what we're doing right now? When well, we've gathered together with this room packed full of people, and right now, we've gathered together to worship God like he's in our midst. Like, this is glorious, isn't it? And what we're doing right now is so different than every other hour in our weeks. Like, we have assembled together before the God of the universe to stand, to sit in his presence, to sing with our lips, to listen to him speak to us. Like this is not duty. This is delight, immeasurable delight. There's a big difference between the two. There are so many reasons. I'm not gonna say that. But the, the main one is obvious. True love is not driven by obligation. I have to do this. True love is driven by passion. I want to do this. So mark it down, brothers and sisters. We will not honor God with worship as obligation. We will not honor God by coming in here, singing some songs, praying some prayers, listening to a sermon, and walking away, having done our Sunday duty. That is not honoring to God. And on a side note, let's be honest, that's not satisfying to us either, which is why God has not designed worship to be that way. God has designed worship to be a time when we come together together Like this. And we see, we behold the power and the glory of God. A love that is better than life itself. And our lips just start to overflow with praise. Our hands shoot into the air. Our shouts rise to heaven and resound across Washington because we are a people in love with God. Oh, may this be the scene every week in our worship. May may this hour be marked by a heart captivating, mind exhilarating, breathtaking, awe-inspiring worship of Almighty God. And see it, don't miss this. That kind of worship will not only be glorifying to God, it will be satisfying to us. People who realize the greatness of God's love, their worship is not duty, it is delight. I think it's a tragedy in some senses that so many children in so many churches who don't come to worship never see their parents sing songs of joy to God. They're missing out on seeing their mom or dad with their face in their hands or tears in their eyes, just overwhelmed by the grace, the greatness of God in worship. Don't we want our kids to see that? You just think about the cumulative effect between the ages of four or five, 17 or 18. We have hundreds, six to seven, hundred worship services spent with mom and her dad in authentic passionate communion with God the effect of that cannot be measured the effect of seeing mom and dad overwhelmed with awe and beaming with joy singing the praises of God with bible open listening to the word of God saying change my life through it and people will say well yeah but so much of the service in the sermon will be over some children's heads well of course it will like it's supposed to be over their heads they're beginners and When they come out of the womb, the English language is over their head. We don't say, well, let's just put them with other children so they can understand the language they speak. No, we immerse them in the English language, most of which they do not understand. And what's our hope, our expectation, is they'll grow to understand it and enjoy it and know it. May we never underestimate what they do understand. And the teachable moments that are happening, what an opportunity when we learn to dialogue with our kids' students after worship services, explain things to them in a way that is massive in their growth in relationship with God. So it just doesn't seem right that we as parents would take our children in their most formative years and only let them be with other children or other adults for that matter to shape their understanding of the worship of God, something that is so essential I mean, in a sense, is the essence of what life is about. Like, we want to show them that. We want to have them with us, modeling what it means to have reverential joy in the presence of Almighty God. And if worship's duty, that will make no sense to us. Worship is delight. If worship is delight, then let's be jealous for our kids to experience that. So when you realize the greatness of God's love for you, worship is it just changed everything. Worship's not mere duty. It's a measurable delight. That leads to the third effect I want to show you in the psalm. And it's really one of the barriers, if not, I would say maybe the barrier that keeps us from getting to that kind of worship and keeps us from this kind of addiction to God. Follow with me. When you realize the greatness of God's love for you, third effect, you want God more than you want even his greatest gifts. When you realize the greatness of God's love for you, you will want God more than you want even his greatest gifts. Now it's here that I want to address an obvious question that I think would be in your mind in light of what we've seen and said at this point. So biblical Christianity, we've seen, involves obsession with Christ, addiction to God, love for God that is greater than love for anyone, anything in this world. So does that mean then that it's wrong to love your spouse a lot or to love your kids deeply or for that matter to enjoy all kinds of good things that God gives us in the world? And the answer to that question, in light of all Scripture, is absolutely no. Like, it is altogether right. It is biblically right to love your spouse a lot. And to love your kids deeply. And God exhorts us in His Word to enjoy all kinds of good gifts that come from His hand. But that's just it. If we're not careful, think about it. Is it possible to receive those gifts and love them more than we love the God who gave them to us. Is it possible? I would go a step further. It might even be dangerously easy for any of us to love family, health, hobbies, homes, all sorts of things. I'm like to put myself in this. And even to thank God for these things. Is it possible to do that, but not to actually love God. I would say it's even possible, if not dangerously easy, for people to love forgiveness of sins and promise of heaven. But not to love God. So how is that possible? Well, think about it. Imagine you're stranded at sea, drowning in the water, and a ship arrives to rescue you. Just because you want that lifeboat to come get you, and just because you gladly take it in order to live, that doesn't act automatically mean that you love the captain of the ship. That's a very different thing, isn't it? And if we're not careful, this is what we'll call Christianity today. A bunch of people who don't want to go to hell, who will gladly take the supposed lifeboat to heaven, but you look at their lives on earth, and there's little to no real love for the captain of the ship. In other words, you can have a lot of people in the church gratefully enjoying all kinds of gifts, even thanking God for those gifts. But the reality is, when it comes down to it, their hearts aren't for the giver, they're for the gifts. And I just want to point out that's not the case in Psalm 63. You see how everything here is focused on God, not his gifts? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, not you have to give me. I seek you, like you. You're not a means to an end, you're the end. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, not your gifts. I've seen you in the sanctuary, I beheld your power, your glory, your love is better than life. That's why I praise you, in your name I lift up my hands. My soul is satisfied with you, not your gifts. I think of you all day and night. My soul clings not to your gifts, my soul clings to you. This is what biblical faith is designed to be. And think about it, in light of the phrase we keep coming back to, this phrase, when David says, your love is better than life. Put this in perspective, because what David just did is he just took what is arguably most valuable to him and to us, life itself, and he's putting it in a totally different perspective. Think about it this way. Your life is more valuable to you than your money, right? Like if a robber were to confront you tonight, threaten your life, if you didn't give him the money you have, you'd give him the money to preserve your life, your life more important. Your life is more valuable to you than comfort. You and I will endure all sorts of painful surgeries, procedures, processes. If a doctor tells us that's the only way we can live, then we'll, we'll do it. So you apply that picture here. David's saying, ask me to choose the good gift God has given me called life or choose the God who gave me this gift and his love for me. David just said, I choose the giver every time. I want God, his love, more than I want, a life. And the heart that knows the greatness of God's love says the same thing with every other gift, even the most valuable gifts in this life. The heart that knows the greatness of God's love wants God, more than even his greatest gifts. When we think about family, we think about health, we think about food, friendship, music, art, sports, hobbies, jobs, achievements, comfort, acclaim, accomplishments, so many good things in this world, even great things in this world. Don't miss this. The Bible's not saying any of these things are bad in and of themselves. They are good gifts from God. Yet, if we long for and love these good, even great gifts more than we long for and love the giver of those gifts, then we are idolaters and not worshipers of God. And it's dangerously easy to go there, isn't it? Idols in our lives are not usually bad things. They're good things. That's why they're idols. Our heart's drawn to them. And it's not, not, again, it's not these things are bad. I mean, this is part of how God brings satisfaction to us. But our satisfaction is ultimately not found in the gifts. Our satisfaction is found in the giver. That's the whole point. When you know the greatness of God's love for you, then you'll be satisfied in the giver more than the gift. That's the whole point. So, And that, this has a final effect here because this has huge implications. So like, what does this mean? I mean? Like some of you are in here. You're like, I'm going through hard times right now. What does this mean for... My life right now, here's what it means. This is huge for the most difficult days we experience in this life. So when you realize the greatness of God's love for you, this is the fourth effect, then your experiences in the wilderness become experiences in worship. Your experiences in the wilderness become experiences in worship. So we mentioned at the beginning that David wrote this psalm in the middle of the wilderness, right? When his life was in danger. By the end of this psalm, in the face of those who seek to destroy David's life, he's saying, the king rejoices in God. So how's that possible? How is it possible to rejoice in God when you're in the wilderness? When you're end of your rope? When you're not even sure tomorrow's going to come? Or even quite frankly like we see in some psalms, you're not even sure you want tomorrow to come because you're so tired of the challenges and the trials that you're facing. I ask that because I know some of you are there. Like I know there are people in this room and at other campuses right now who are in the wilderness. Some of you just got there. Some of you have been there for a long time. Some of you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Some of you don't see a light anywhere. You're at the end of your rope. Maybe it's physical health in your own life or somebody around you. Maybe it's it's just challenges you're facing in your life, your family, your work. Some of you are afraid of what tomorrow holds. Others of you, some days you don't even want tomorrow to come. Think about it. In light of what we're talking about, like, Maybe the best way to put it is some good gift from God is not there in your life right now. Or maybe some good gifts. I think about Sandy's testimony earlier. When my hair is falling out, like hair's a good gift. Health is a good gift. So I loved about that testimony, right? When the good gift was taken away, I looked up and I saw that God's love was sufficient for me. The giver was still there. That's the whole picture of biblical faith. It's Trust in the giver when sometimes the gifts aren't there, when the health is fading, when your marriage is struggling, when your kids are wandering, when work is wearing, when your life is tiring, and on and on and on in the wilderness, when the gifts aren't there like we want them to be there. Here's the good news, and this is why this is so huge. So Don't miss this. If our hope, our affection, our adoration is tied up in the gifts, then when one of those gifts is taken away, then hope comes crashing down. Life comes crashing down. But we're not intended to put that kind of stock in even the greatest things in this world. Like the beauty is, there is in the middle of wilderness when these things are taken away and you don't know where to turn, you look up and you see the giver is still there. His love is still there. You wanna know why? His love is better than life. It's not only because it stretches higher, deeper than anything else in this world. His love is better than life because it lasts longer than life. Not even death can take away the love of our God. You get to the end, you breathe your last breath, and all these gifts are gone just like that. The beauty is there's a God who has saved you from your sins, who has promised you, now hear it. Don't just hear it or believe it. Like, feel it. God so loves you. He gave his one and only son so that when you believe in him, you trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, reconcile you to God. You believe in him. You will never perish. You will have everlasting life with him. That is love (laughs) that nothing in this world can ever compare with. So I just invite you. I never really believed, like received, realized that love. In your life, I invite you to do that today. And not just in some cold religious routine, like to trust. Realize right now, in your sin, you're separated from God. But God loves you. He's made a way for you to be reconciled to him. So say today, I receive your love. Forgive me of my sin. Reconcile me to yourself. Like like I'm in the desert, you're the water. I just want to drink from you. And he he will not only save you from your sin, the beauty is he will satisfy your soul now and forever in a way that nothing in this world can. And then for all who have begun a relationship with God, you know God in this way. And maybe, maybe for, for whatever reason, your heart and mind has been drawn to all kinds of gifts or things or pursuits or affections in this world in a way that's pulled you away from him. I just want to invite you, not to see these things as bad necessarily, unless they're sinful, but to see these things as gifts from the giver and just to look beyond them to the giver. Don't keep the focus here. Look at him and just exalt him, praise him, and put your trust in him, especially if you're in the wilderness and his gifts aren't there. Then look up and see a God whose love is better than life.
0: This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.